You're listening to the Lompoc Foursquare Church Podcast. I come into every service where I minister the word, and one of the prayers I offer as I just prior to I, I teach, I said, Lord, uh, let me hear what I'm saying today, because <laughs> I need to be changed. They say in pedagogy, there's a, a theory of pedagogy that simply says, he who teaches is twice taught. So as you teach, you begin to, to hear the very things. I, I can't tell you how many times I preach, I go, ooh, that sounds really good, I ought to do that. And, uh, and so today this message has particular relevance to me, not that it's important to you, but I'm, I think I'm just like everybody else in this room. There are days when uh, life doesn't seem to be all that good, kind of down days, and you're wondering if you're going to get one foot in front of another. You're wondering if you're ever going to get off this merry-go-round. Sometimes you're, you're tracking very similar territory and wondering if you're going to make some progress. Well, this message today is going to be a very hopeful word for all of us. He's been talking about different makers, difference makers. I'm going to make it as personal as I can to you today because I want God to make a difference in your life. Robert E. Quinn, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called Change the World. And his thesis is so simple and yet so profound. Here's what it is. There is an ordinary need for ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference. There's an ordinary need for ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference difference. I'm going to put myself in the category of ordinary. I'm going to put us all there. And that there is inside of you this this deep longing for your life to matter. And so as I talk about that today, I want to try to give you a hopeful pathway for that to happen. And I've, I've titled the teaching this morning simply, Holy ambition, which is an awkward title for me because oftentimes when I'm lecturing to pastors, I will say to them, you cannot root your ministry in ambition. It must be rooted in surrender. And yet as I was studying this simple passage of scripture from Philippians chapter 3 verse 14, I kept coming back to this concept of ambition and is there such a thing as a holy ambition? Is there a way of looking at ambition in a way that it's a summons by God to be more than I thought or I've settled, I should say, to be. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, just that one verse says these words. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Look at your notes there if you have them. Because every point I'm going to make is taken from the same scripture. It's really kind of funny when I send it out like this, outline like this to, to them to print out. They said, uh, by the way, that's the same text, every verse. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of stuck. It's just the same verse. But every, every time we look at the verse, we're going to look at something different in it. I press on towards the goal for, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me read a broader context the verse is surrounding it, so you'll appreciate why this verse is so important. 
Paul starts writing in verse 12, I haven't already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. A lot of language about pressing on, straining forward. There's this, this arduous sense of, I'm not going to stay stuck. I'm not going to remain where I'm at. But the verse that turned it all for me, interestingly, is the next verse, in verse 15. And all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. I actually think that's my new life verse. Because I, can, I just love the fact, if you're all mature, you're going to agree with what I'm about to say. I just thought that was a pretty cool verse. So like, that's, that's a pastor's verse. And if you don't agree with me, don't worry, God's going to convince you. I'm right, and it's just the way it is. And uh, so that's Bernie and I's new life verse. But let me read it out of a different translation, the Phillips translation. All of us who are spiritually adult should set ourselves this sort of ambition. And if at present you cannot see this, yet you will find that this is the attitude which God is leading you to adopt. God's holy ambition for you is to press towards the goal of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And if you think there's another objective, God's going to get it clear with you that if you're going to grow up in Jesus, you're going to end up with that verse being a point of guidance for you. Everybody in here, this is your verse. This is your summons by God as an ordinary person with the ordinary need to make an extraordinary difference and impact. But when we talk about ambition, or at least for me, I have to strip myself of the notion of what I call unholy ambition. Because I've had ambition in my life. I started off thinking as a young man, you know, I had certain gifts and capacities and was being recognized for them. So my thought was, if I could just have some prominence, I could use my platform to talk about Jesus. It's kind of like, if I could just become a rock star, my testimony would be that much better. And so prominence was where I started with. I didn't realize I was being driven by youthful pride, but I just wanted to serve God, so give me a platform. Give me as many people as I can talk to at once. And then as I grew up and matured, I realized, oh, i got to get a little bit beyond that one. So what I bought into, what others have talked about, is that our life would have significance. Okay, so I'm, I'm off the prominence thing. I'm willing to play backup guitar behind Jesus, okay? But I'm now past that, and now I want my life to matter, to count. But I'm not even sure that that's an ultimate objective that will get me there. Because when I want significance, part of what happens is I start to play out significance with definitions of how I see what is significant by how others live their life and how I could match that or how I could attain to that kind of standard. I have some heroes I want to be like. And I begin to manufacture a life that I think would be meaningful and make a significant contribution. But I have come to the conclusion after all these years that 
It's not prominence. It's not significance. It's obedience. It's following Jesus in the way that he is shaping my life that I ultimately get to make my very best contribution. My fear, and I'm sure it has been yours, however unstated, is that if I surrendered my life completely to God, I would be permanently unhappy because he would ask me to do something that I'm either not equipped to do or have no desire for. That if God really had his way, essentially I bought into an image of God that he's wanting to ruin my life to the glory of his name. Now, I never said that out loud because it sounds too poor theology. But there is this fear that if I let go and let God, I'm going to get chosen for something that is not quite at the standard that I thought. But obedience, in fact, is the only way to arrive at what your heart longs for because your heart has eternity in it and it's always drawn to what God is most up to in you. And you, in fact, will never find your life until you surrender it. Now, obedience. So what does false or unholy ambition look like? I think there are three things that you've experienced in your life that make it pretty clear. Number one, unholy ambition is when you are finding your value in how you compete against others. That when you're competing, you're beating them. And your value is, I can beat you at something. And when you adopt an ambition of com competition, I'm going to be better than you, or I'm going to beat you at something, you have the wrong motive in your life to find your life. So often we'll just say, if I can beat him. If you ever never watched the classic movie Chariots of Fire, it is an incredible story of someone from England who won the 100-yard uh, dash at that time and that his whole life was set on being the fastest man in the world. And yet when he won it, his life had instantly become empty because he had set his affection on something that could never answer to the hole in his heart. Why, Eric Little, who ran because he felt God's pleasure in his running, did it as a response to what God was doing in his life. And win or lose, he found his meaning in something deeper. If you don't find it in competition, sometimes you find your ambition in comparison. I'm better than somebody. Now, what do we know is the problem with, uh, with comparison? It's one thing to beat somebody. It's another thing to be better than somebody. But the problem with being better than somebody, there's always seems to be somebody else who's better than you. So we tend to compare ourselves with people we already know we're better than in whatever field. And so if your ambition is to be better than somebody, just know that there's somebody who's better than you. Get over it. You're not the goat. If you don't know what a goat is, Tom Brady's a goat. Greatest of all time. So there's goats. I mean, and you're not a goat. You're, well, 
I don't want to say you are, but there's a, there, there is a sense in our life that if we're just better than somebody, then that would give us meaning. What a poor excuse for a vision for one's life. Now, if you think those two aren't good, the third one, for some reason, captures our imagination all the time. If I can compete and beat somebody, if I can compare and I'm better than, well, here's the third one that we buy into, is that if I could just copy somebody else, if I could have their life. Sure, you, you, you see it in the arts, you see it in music, you see it in theater, you see it in prominent places of uh, people you, you admire. Boy, if I could just be them. I used to do something really stupid. I'm going to confess it now. If you share it with anybody, I'll deny I said it. But when I, I pastored in for a while in Lancaster, which is basically, it's where God sends you when there's something wrong in your life, and he's kind of deal with you, okay? So, I mean, I, mean, I love Lancaster, but at Lancaster. And periodically, we would leave Lancaster to go down to Westwood area to watch a movie just to get out of the high desert and get to where some action was going on, UCLA campus and all that stuff. And I was younger in my 20s. And in my 20s, I bought a Cadillac Seville. And I mean, it was, it was used, but man, it was a classy ride. My, 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 did I look good in that. <laughs> and uh, and here's, this is how silly it is. I used to take that ride with my wife, and we'd always have a friends with us. We'd drive down, we get down a little bit early, we'd drive through Westwood or Beverly Hills looking at all the homes and wondering how many drug runners are there in the world who could own these homes? I mean, you know, we try to figure out, where does this money come from? So we're driving around. But my favorite thing was to drive down the road until I found a, one of those big houses with one of those circle driveways, you know? And I would drive in it. I'd kind of slow down until there's a lot of traffic behind me. Then I'd drive into the driveway. I'd start to get out and kind of wave at everybody. And they'd drive by, and I'd get in the car and drive out again. So I thought it was the coolest thing to pretend that I was one of those people. Boy, that was not a very good confession. I didn't get any response out of that other than that guy is really hurting for something, right? But I was, it was so funny. I used to think that was funny, but now I look back and see how tragic that was. But, you know, we copy people. We want to be someone else. We don't want to be us. We want to be them. Here's the problem with ambition that's rooted in comparison, competition, or copying somebody. They are all calls to live somebody else's life, not yours. They are all summoning you to buy into somebody else's calling rather than your own. And it's a distraction from the holy ambition, and here I'm going to say it, the holy ambition of being yourself. Being the person that God has made you to be. Ephesians 2, verse 10, says it this way. We are his masterpiece. We are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, good deeds, that he has preordained for us. Your heart is drawn towards a significant, amazing difference-making kind of life and we confuse that by trying to be somebody else rather than ourselves. 
You cannot be anybody else, and here's why. That's already taken. The only role left for you is you. The way God has hardwired you, the way that God has gifted you, the experiences you've gone through, the people who've influenced you, the situations and circumstances you've negotiated in your life, all of those things have not crippled you or broken you or damaged you. They have, in fact, when you get the perspective that God's at work in your life, are preparing you to be you. And when you are you, you get to make the contribution that your heart longs for deeply but gets falsely attracted to in some other ways to live out. Okay, let's read the verse one more time. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Three simple things to help us do that. Number one, Live responsibly. Take a pen and take the word I and circle it. Just the one word. Circle the word I. 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 When I say live responsibly, I'm saying that you must understand that holy ambition is where you refuse to blame anybody else for where you're at or holding them accountable for where you need to be. I'm not saying that God can't use people in your life to help you. I'm not suggesting that people haven't hurt you and made it difficult. But I'm saying that when you live responsibly, you are choosing not to blame others and hold your life hostage to their actions in order for you to get to where you need to be. Everybody take your hands, cup them together, just like that. I want you to put a mirror in them. Put a nice little round mirror in there. Come on, everybody, cup your hands. Here we go. Nobody gets out of this one. Here we go. Cup your hands, put a mirror. Now pull the mirror up to your face, look at it. Say these words. I see the problem. Okay, just thought we'd say this. Just thought we'd make it as easy as possible on everybody here, right? Listen to this story from John chapter 5, verse 7. One who was there at this pool of Bethesda had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? One would assume that if he's been there for 38 years, trying to get into this magic water when an angel troubled it, as the story goes, that yes, he wants to get well. And yet Jesus sees in his condition Staying that way for 38 years, that his first question is, do you really want to get well? Or have you found your identity in being wounded, in being broken? And he says, do you want to get well? And his response, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets ahead of me. The reason I'm stuck is because no one else has taken responsibility for my life. Look back up at that verse. You press on to help me get towards the goal in my life. No, it's I. 
It is, I must take responsibility. I must respond to what God's summons is. I cannot wait for somebody else to get it right so I get it right. And as long as I want to blame others, I'm going to be sitting by the pool rather than in the pool. Blame makes you need to be asked a question. Do you really want to get well? Or have you found your identity in being stuck? And getting well would change too much. Why is it that we should accept responsibility? My answer may be surprising to you, but it's fundamental to me to believe this. The reason I want to accept responsibility and not blame others is because God says, I can. Hear that. The reason you want to accept responsibility to press forward is because you can. The Bible says it in 1 Peter. His divine power has given you everything you need for your life. For godliness, through your knowledge of him who has called you in his own glory and goodness. And through these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. The reason you want to take responsibility for your life is because you can. I can respond to God. I can respond to his invitation. I can live responsibly. Are you helped by other people? Absolutely. I mean, when you're going through deep change, I think you should bring a friend. And I love partners. You know, I, when I'm taking on an arduous task, one of my most important things to do is have somebody around. I need encouragers. I think everybody needs running partners. And speaking of running partners, my wife and I, over the years, have enjoyed running, going out and go out and doing our 5K. And she's not been enjoying it as much as she used to. And so, no, I don't want to do a 5K today. I'm going to do something different. And so when she made a decision not to do it, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to go. She's not going to go. At first, that was kind of nice. I'll do something different with her. But eventually, I started getting mad at her. She's not wanting to run. and I'm not getting my run in. Like, if she doesn't run, I can't run. My legs don't work or something. <laughs> It was really funny, but I was getting, I remember being mad at my wife. I said, why am I mad at her? I know, because she won't run with me anymore. It's her fault I've gone from 36 to 38. <laughs> That's my right arm. And anyway, so, <laughs> I, I mean, it's just like, and all of a sudden I found myself blaming her because I didn't want to take responsibility for my life. I wanted an out. And my out was that it was somebody else's fault that I'm here. And I was waiting for somebody else to do the work that only I could do for me. You want to live responsibly because God says you can. That's a miracle. That God says you can respond to him and things can begin to change. 
What's the second thing? Same verse, we don't want to surprise you. I press on towards the goal. Let's take your pencil. When it says live humbly, what does that mean? Circle the words press on. Just those two words, press on. Press on by its very nature is suggesting there's more to learn. There's more to grow in. I haven't figured it all out. I think one of the things that keeps you alive the most is being a lifelong learner. Oh, there's lots of things I have deep convictions about. But one of my deepest convictions is that I don't know it all. And I will always be growing until the day I die. If I'm going to die, I want to die with a book in my hand reading something. That and a bag of chips, ice cream, and a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> that will be my last meal. Kind of walking into heaven having to brush off the chips off my shirt, kind of wipe off the kind of smile and find out that Jesus all along believed that Dr. Pepper was healthy and I didn't know it. You know, that's my whole goal in life to discover that one. But being a lifelong learner, I press on. Here's the, get ready for this. Here's the paradox. Only those who are willing to acknowledge they haven't arrived are likely to ever get there. That's the paradox. In this passage of Scripture, there's all this language that I read earlier about, I've not already attained it. I haven't already been made perfect, but I'm pressing on. I'm straining forward. I'm taking hold of. This language of Paul that's saying, there's so much more that God has for us. And I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep growing. Living humbly is simply saying, I've chosen to keep on growing for the rest of my life. In fact, one of the greatest challenges you'll have in that lifelong learning is not just learning something new, but unlearning some things that you learned wrong. If any of you have taken up a sport and self-taught yourself, you know that you, when you really, really get a skilled per, a person in that, in that sport, the first thing they do is they teach you by getting rid of all the bad habits. I taught myself how to golf. It looks a lot like chopping wood. You know, it's based on brawn. I'm a big guy. I'm going to hit that ball, and it's going to go forever. I didn't realize forever, I intended it to go straight. My forever has a big, long curve to it. Whenever I go golfing with anybody, I'm playing in the parallel lane. You know, around this course, I'm over here, and we're, we kind of end up somewhere close together. And so when I was being taught how to play it right, the first thing they had to do was t unlearn me. There are many things that you grew up learning that you need to get unlearned. You learned ways of thinking about yourself, doubting yourself. You learned kinds of things that were passed on to you about what people thought about you and what they said about you. And they became defining to you. 
They never expanded you any longer. They just defined you and restricted you. And there are some things you have to unlearn so that you can learn again. It's an arduous process. But if you're going to make a difference in your life, if you're going to end up with holy ambition, you not only have to take responsibility for your life, you have to live humbly and say that I have so much to grow and learn in. And the good news is that God loves to teach us. He loves to lead us. And when you're saying, I have much to learn, you are saying something really important. You are saying, the greatest thing in my life has not happened yet. Now, as a Christian, you get to say that all the way to the grave. Because the greatest thing that's happened in your life won't happen in your life. There's an old Greek philosopher who said these words, which I find helpful. It is impossible for a man or woman to learn what they think they already know. Oh, I know, I know, I know, no. No, no, you don't. And part of what we have to do is let God continually speak to us and call us into something teachable. And here's the last one. I not only have to live responsibly, I not only live humbly, but I press on towards, now we're going to circle three words, toward the goal. One word, two words, three words. We're not making this difficult, folks, mainly because I've got to listen to the message myself and I've got to make sense of it, okay? But this is as simple as I can get. Towards the goal, we're going to live intentionally. One of my favorite intentional statements I've ever heard is from Winston Churchill when he was asked to become the prime minister during the war. And his response to the king was, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and all of my past life had been but a preparation for this hour, for this trial. And I'm sure I would not fail. To live intentionally is to realize that everything that has happened in my life is not to keep me from my life, but to get, it, get me to my life. And while I can't change something that's happened to me, I can change how I view what's happened to me. And I can change my perspective on how what happened to me is now going to contribute to my future, not rob me from it. Holy ambition is acknowledging that you matter to God and that he has shaped you, get ready for this, to make a unique kingdom contribution. What is the goal? I'm going to state it, and then I'm going to try to support it. The goal, the prize, is to become the person that God intended for you to be. It's not too mystical. It is to become the person that you were meant to be so you could make the contribution you were supposed to make. And then it's reinforced in chapter 2 and 3 with some of the deepest theology you will ever find on the Christ. In chapter 2 of Philippians, theologians refer to this chapter as the great kenosis. The word kenosis in the original Greek has to do with emptying. That God, who was in the very form of God, Jesus was the very form of God, thought himself 
you know, that he wasn't willing to hang on to anything, and willingly he emptied himself. He became a man, identified with us as a servant, took on flesh, and then it says it went, and, he, and not only that, he not only served us, but then he died. But not just died, he died the death of a cross. And then it says, and whereby, here's this God emptying himself to identify with us, whereby God has given him now a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus was modeling what Paul was talking about, pressing towards the goal, what is the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that God became one of us, identified with us, so that Jesus could become our Redeemer. This great emptying was not to just be emptying, but to be filled with the promise of all of what he was supposed to be to us. And then in chapter 3, where we're reading, we're in the middle of Paul saying, here's my personal kenosis. I'm following Christ. I used to be a Pharisee of Pharisee. I used to be one of the most learned and intelligent guys you've ever seen in your life. I've accomplished all sorts of things in my religious faith. I've been a chief persecutor of the church, but I count all that stuff as rubbish. I count it as loss that I may know Christ and, and know him in his sufferings and being conformed to his death and that somehow I may know him and, be, and, and identify with his resurrection. That the passage of Scripture we're reading is actually pointing back to Philippians 2 where he says Jesus emptied himself to become our Savior. We are emptying ourselves not to become the Savior. We are emptying ourselves to become us, to become who we were meant to be. That what Christ has authored to us in redeeming us and buying us back from sin, he is offering us to not get stuck with the reality of a self-made life, but somehow a surrendered life that ends up having this holy ambition to not be better than anybody, to not beat other people, or even to be someone else, but with this holy ambition to be one's self. Not one's manufactured, made-up self, but one's discovered self in Christ who is summoning you to discover that being you is the best thing you can be. Holy ambition is not trying to be like anybody else. Holy ambition is about being yourself the person God has called and shaped you to be. I'm reminded of a prayer by a Danish theologian named Soren Kierkegaard. His prayer is so simple, but I find it one that I frequently offer. And here it is. And now with God's help, I shall become myself. And I guess if somebody wasn't listening to this entire message, they may think I'm just talking about human achievement. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a holy achievement. Where you're allowing everything that's happened in your life to come underneath his touch and that you get to embrace all of your history Watch how God redeems all of that to make you the best version of yourself. And then you get to make 
the contribution that only you get to make. And when you do, you're an ordinary person with the ordinary need to make an extraordinary impact. You are a difference maker. I press on towards that goal. Thank you for listening to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. To find out more about Lompoc Foursquare Church or to watch us live online, please visit mylfc.com. Me too.